Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadist for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secular Jihadist for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizwi. With me is uh, Armin Navabi. Uh, the deplatformed, recently deplatformed Armin Novavi from Hey Armin. Hello. How's it going? Hi. Yeah. Are you? Did you? St- so Armin was recently. If you if you don't know, who's recently deplatformed from what is it? The University of Ro- what is it? Royal Mount Royal University in Calgary. Mount Royal University in Calgary. So after the Christchurch attacks, they decided that the last thing we need is more dialogue. <laughs> so what they did was they're like, okay, let's get Armin off of this because this will be too sensitive. Right. But he ended up doing the event anyway. And anyway, we're going to talk about that later on. There's a lot of news stories about it, so you can check it out. But anyway, yeah, Armin and I are here. And today, um, you may have noticed recently, we've been having a lot of guests from Australia. Yes. So some of them, we've had Harris Sultan, we've had Zara Kay, we've had um, Lara Hall, um, uh, we had Nick Gray, just a, a lot of people, because there's a, there's something really exciting going on over there. There's a burgeoning ex-Muslim movement that's recently gained a lot of momentum. So uh, today, we also have actually um, just someone I've become a, a big fan of recently, just by reading the way that she writes, which is just so crystal clear and so impactful. Um, and uh, she joins us today. Omeima Mohammed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So privileged and honored to be here. Oh, it's uh, the honor is all ours. So I, I'm going to just read something that you wrote, and I got this from your, your Twitter timeline. You said, my life is colored with a constant sense of relief, relief that I escaped an abusive relationship with Allah and Muhammad, relief to be free of indefinite guardianship, relief that I can embrace my true potential, relief that I can exist without apology. So when you, when you say these words, you know, for everybody else who's thinking, for anybody listening who's thinking, oh, that's Islamophobic, I just want to remind them that you know, you are an Australian uh, of Egyptian origin. You came to Australia when you were a year old, and you were raised as a Salafi Muslim. Salafi yeah. Muslim means Holy like ultra conservative version. Wow! And then I didn't know that. Uh, you had to run away from home when you became an atheist yeah. around three years ago. And uh, yeah. recently, you started uh, about six months ago. You discovered this uh, the ex-Muslim movement, and uh, now you work closely with Zara Kay. Who you know yeah. we're all huge fans of here. Yes, and yeah. uh, she started Faithless Hijabi, and you write for them. So um, you've lived the life, you've had the experience, and that's why you're saying what you're saying. So c- can you start from the beginning? Kind of tell us uh, how uh, you know you started out your childhood, your family, mm-hmm. your journey. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so as you say, I was raised as a Salafi, and for anyone that doesn't know. Uh, it's a literalist interpretation of the doctrine and basically a commitment to the way of life of Muhammad and the companions um, who are believed to be the living embodiments of that doctrine. So my dad was born and raised in Egypt and he came into Salafism um, in his late teens, early 20s. Um, he was spending a lot of time at the mosque and he actually met 
affiliates of the Muslim Brotherhood and became really connected um, with them and a massive supporter of, of their movement. So he was thrilled when um, Morrissey was elected and, and all of that was happening. Um, he would love nothing more than a, a caliphate and, and all of that. So he's, he's pretty full on. Um, and, and he's in Australia. This is all in Australia. So he was in Egypt until um, he was in his 30s when he left. Mm-hmm. So born and raised there. Um, then my mum was born and raised in Australia to um, uh, Egyptian immigrants. And they were liberal Muslims or cultural Muslims. So basically their engagement with Islam was whatever parts had become embedded in Egyptian culture. So, you know, like general modesty, abstinence from alcohol and pork, fasting, which for some reason is the thing that most non-practicing Muslims still do. I I, I never got that because it's like the hardest thing to do. But, um, yeah, so they they lived that in Australia. And then same thing as my dad, actually. They met Salafis at the mosque, at a local mosque in Australia. Um, Basically, they told them that they were living Islam completely wrong, that they needed to change their entire lifestyle, and they became Salafis too in Australia. Um, yeah, like they burnt all their photographs because this person told them that it's haram to have photos. Photos? Um, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so really drastic changes. Um, yeah, my grandmother went from not wearing any hijab to wearing niqab. Um, yeah, just drastic. And then they ended up moving to Egypt when my mum was 16 um she met my dad who was 26 they got married had my brother had me and then came to australia a year after i was born why? and then my brother was born here why did Why'd he... they come yeah um i think my my mum's parents had come back to australia so they'd already set up a medical practice here um after their first migration and um i think everyone there knows that it's a better life in mm-hmm. the west mm. they just don't acknowledge it in terms of values and morality, they just will take it for what they can get and then work against it while they're here. Like that hypocrisy never yeah. fails to astound me. Um, Does it come yeah, off as they, ungrateful to you? Like the fact that they're living in a country that is is better than their country because of certain values, but and at the same time, they're, they're like against those values. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's not necessarily ungrateful. I think they're delusional. Like they've attributed the wrong things to their success Mm. and they just blame everything that goes wrong in the Middle East on Western imperialism and basically the government's being corrupt, which is true, um, and not practicing Islam properly. So they still believe, after all the evidence to the contrary, that if a government practiced Sharia to the letter the country would prosper. That's their belief. And they just think the West got lucky. That's actually, they just, uh, they think because they've stolen all the resources, Mm. they're in a position to have a, you know, higher quality of life and not because our values support that sort of progress. So, yeah, it's pretty fucked up. And, um, yeah, that's, I heard a lot of that propaganda growing up. But, um, yeah, anyway, so they came to Australia, um, and raised us as Salafis. Um, they basically their parenting was one hundred percent the doctrine. There was nothing else, no culture, 
no no external values, no external um, logic or, or psychology. Um, everything they did was derived straight from the doctrine. And they were basically, their 100% focus was establishing the slave-master relationship that we were supposed to have with Allah and preparing us to meet him on the day of judgment and be held accountable for our life here. So we knew from the get-go that this life was meant to be one of complete sacrifice um, and that the the world on earth was, or our life on earth was meant to be like a, a prison. So, you know, like in the doctrine says that uh, sorry, believers will feel like they're in prison um, on earth and that's how it's meant to be. Doesn't that contradict the idea of moving to Australia? I mean, wouldn't you want to be in Egypt if that was if you were trying to sacrifice everything for Islam? Yeah, um, I don't know. He used to say all the time that he was really upset that he was raising us here, oh. and that if he had his way, he'd be back in Egypt because we're getting so many um, like sinful influences, and they, he didn't want to normalize um, any like ideas that were contrary to the doctrine but i don't know both of his parents had died when just like just before they left mm. so and then my mum's parents were in australia so i just think that he followed my mum like her parents were still living so mm. yeah look i honestly i think it was a really bad choice for, i'm i'm happy about it obviously <laughs> but from his perspective yeah. it honestly doesn't really make sense mm. but um that's the situation that we were in Mm. And, um, yeah, so we were sold a choice between a temporary hell on this earth or an eternal hell in the afterlife. And their job was to train us to follow the rules without question. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just basically prioritize Islam above yeah. everything else. And with the West, uh, being in the West, um, it was like the obsession with obedience and submission was turned up like a hundred notches. Um, yeah, they were just uh, obsessed with ensuring that we weren't influenced by, um, yeah, basically the godless society that they felt we were surrounded by. And to make matters worse, we lived in an area that had a pretty non-existent Muslim community. So it was just our family, um, pretty much. We were an hour and a half away from Sydney, which is sort of the, the, the hub Mm. of um, the sort of Islamic society in New South Wales. Um, and, yeah, so we weren't insulated by like-minded people that were going to reinforce our values for us. And I don't know if people realise this, but, like, pack mentality is such a big part of Islam. Like, everything is about conformity. Everything is about monitoring your everyone else's behaviour so that, no one is able to stray or sort of go off on their own. Um, yeah, well, the word comes from Islam is derived from Aslama, which means submission. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you have verses like Amrul Maruf Wan Hianan Monkar, which means uh, enjoin good, forbid the evil. Yeah. It's a Muslim's religious duty to watch for when their brother or sister in Islam right. fails one of their... Um, their duties and to remind them. So there's a lot of safety in living among Muslims and, and Muslims very much believe that too. That, can, can, can I ask, actually, uh, can I, can I touch on that? That's, we call it in Iran, it's called Amr ibn Ma'ruf and Nahiyaz Munkar. 
And that is basically a license to meddle in other people's personal lives. Definitely. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you have permission to tell people that they're not following Islam properly. That's what it does. Right. Exactly. Everyone's policing everyone else. Yeah. It's so horrible. It's like, it makes you like, and this is the point. It's 100% by specific design to make sure that people never feel alone. They Mm. never feel um, free enough to explore other options, Mm. to, um, you know, really challenge their environment, to challenge their their beliefs and the the teachings. Mm. If it's being reinforced from every single direction, yeah. They're never gonna. They're never gonna feel number one the need or the desire mm. to to do anything differently. So it's actually really smart. Yeah, it's very it's clever, powerful, mm. and it's dangerous. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Like the, the Islamic conformity is. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. And I didn't even live in a Muslim community, so I, I don't even know how much harder I, it would be. What? So I can I sorry I, I, yeah. I want to ask one thing because you know you said even earlier uh, you taught described this as a uh, master slave relationship right yeah um, and in in that quote I read you you said that uh, it was relief that you escaped an abusive relationship with Allah and Muhammad and that yeah. reminds me of something that. Uh, Christopher Hitchens talked about how, how he said that this is the relationship between God and the worshiper is a, a master-slave relationship because mm-hmm. you are supposed to love and fear this deity at the same time, right? Yeah. And that's the essence of the master-slave relationship. So, growing up, um, how did you experience that, the, the, the love and fear and the master-slave and mm-hmm. how you describe it as abusive? Yeah. Um so, like, I, I liken that Salafi um, mindset because it really hones in on that slave-master relationship more than any other interpretation, um, basically as a, as a form of psychological warfare that's designed to break you down over time so that all that's left of you is basically a shell of a person that is ready and willing to embrace an ideology that tells you exactly who you're meant to be and exactly how you're, you're meant to live. Um, and it really, unfortunately, it really worked on me um, because it was just re- reinforced from day one. And you take so much of more of your surroundings than what you expect as a kid. And, um, yeah, I was, I was really, really terrified of God, um, really terrified of the afterlife, every part of it. I was terrified of the grave, um, the day of judgment, and whatever followed after that it all sounded horrific to me <laughs> i didn't even want to go to heaven i just didn't want to go to hell right mm. the whole focus wow. was on avoiding hell um mm. and by the way by the way your video Armin, about your experience with hell and the the measures that you felt you had to take to avoid that right. resonated so much with me <laughs> like it's it's so logical right. if this is the the prospect logical, that you're faced yeah. with of course you're going to do that. It's genius. <laughs> I know. Um, and for so those uh, who don't know, who don't know about Armin's story, um, just go, uh, our very first episode of Secular Jihadist uh, ever, Armin told that story. And it's actually, it's uh, incredible. And it's also horrifying. So yeah. um, go and check that out. You can also, there's a video that Seth Andrews did. Um, you can go on YouTube and find the poison pill of Islam, Armin Navabi. So look that up and you can hear his story there. And so, anyway, go ahead. Um, actually, I think that's the first video from the ex-Muslim movement that I saw 
And this was only six months ago that I discovered the ex-Muslim movement, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, and it changed everything for me. Um, yeah, and I just wow. looked at that and I was like, holy shit, I really need to, like, look into this more because, fuck, that's exactly how I felt. Well, um, now yeah. you're here and now we're yeah. raw. That's amazing. I love it. And then what Definitely. happened? Actually, um, yeah, uh, so, yeah, so just to yeah, answer the question, completely fearful, um, petrified. I, I felt like I could never, I basically felt like I didn't understand God and that he was just waiting there to punish us for any mistake that we made. Like I had no concept of what would be enough to get into hell, I mean, into heaven and what would be the tip over point that I'd get into, into hell, especially because Muslims can also go into hell. Like mm. that is so bullshit. <laughs> no other religion has that. <laughs> It's not like um, Christianity where eventually if you would just accept Christ, you could do whatever yeah. you want. I think that's why yeah. cats abuse all those, all those little kids. They know they're like, oh, as long as I submit to uh, Jesus, it's all good. I'll be forgiven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. I, I think ca- cats, I mean, I don't know. Do, don't other religions have this as well? Like, for example, if you're Catholic and you sin and then you haven't yet gone to the church to get forgiveness for those sins, and you die between the two forgiveness, between, yeah. then you have some sins that you have to pay, Eventually. You know? right? Eventually, you're going to get to heaven. I, I, we don't even have that. No, no, Muslim, like, okay, in Islam, right, yeah, Muslims will eventually go to heaven after they spend enough time in hell to pay yeah. for all I, their sins. Don't, I, I don't know. I've heard many different versions of that. There are some people yeah, say that... I don't doubt that. <laughs> huh? Yeah, they, there's, there's no consistent thing, is there? I thought that was the one thing. Whenever I told people, I'm like, "Oh, but eventually we'll go to heaven." Uh, they're like, "No, that's in Christianity. That's not in Islam. No, it's eternal. It's oh, eternal." Wow. So, okay. No, yeah. I always believed that you'd eventually yeah. end up in heaven. in heaven, but that's yeah. very little consolation when you know that you're going to, you know, go into hell For th- and have your skin burnt off and then regrown and over and over again and drink boiling water and all that. Like yeah. one second is enough, but anyway, wouldn't you? Um, wouldn't you like it, w- eventually, if you go to heaven, you would be so traumatized that you're not going to be able to enjoy heaven. <laughs> you're just going to be sitting in heaven and like, going like this. <laughs> and, and you're gonna, and you're gonna, how could you hate God? Yeah, like, why would you see that fucker? Honestly, <laughs> I mean, like, gonna, what are you going to do if you, you have trauma and then you go up to heaven and you've had all the skin regrown, you've been drinking boiling water, like you're not. Yeah. Gonna, you can have all you're the have, in the world. You're going to have angels enough. coming to you and you're going like, to have sex with you and you're going to go away from me. I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> 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 no, but yeah, but I mean, they told us that the, for the smallest sin, you're going to have the, the, you know, the heat of a thousand suns experience for, for years. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't. Uh. But then there's stories like the fact that um, this one prostitute fed a cat. And God was like, oh, she's done such a good thing that I'm, she's going to go to heaven and I'm going to forget the fact that but, she was like, what is that? No, but the problem with that is that all the, all the sweet, sweet, and you know, fluffy stuff, most of them are yeah. not authentic hadith. All the fucking you barbaric are- shit, they're authentic hadith. Like Muhammad, yeah. <laughs> like, every, like every time he like, you know, killed a whole bunch of Jews or tortured people. You check that and like, oh, this is authentic Sorry. hadith. But then the part, the part that he was like, oh, somebody threw garbage from the rooftop on his head, oh. and then one yeah. day she didn't, and he went and go checked on him to see if she's okay. Like, oh, Muhammad was so nice. And you check it, that's actually not authentic hadith. Yeah. <laughs> All the <laughs> fucked up shit is authentic. <laughs> 
I actually yeah. need to check that one. I've been meaning to for a while because we did um, throughout my childhood, my parents would come to us and be like, oh, you know, this thing that we've been practicing, mm. that's actually bitter, which is like, you know, innovation. So yeah. someone's added to the practice or added to the sunna, something that yeah. wasn't there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that happened with a few or things. A, so another I'm, I'm word okay. for that is reform, by the way. Right. Totally. Bitter, reform, heresy, all of that, they all mean the same yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 The Quran um, warns you about reform. But go on, sorry. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so basically, yeah, childhood was pretty, yeah, very intense. Um, they were super obsessed with um, monitoring our behavior, making sure that we didn't show any signs of being corrupted because obviously we were so exposed to, um, you know, the, like the Western world. Like we went to school with non-Muslims. The people at the shopping center we went to were non-Muslims. Our co-workers were non-Muslims. Um, so, which again, you know how you were questioning why we lived in Australia. Well, then why would you live in a place that didn't ha even have a Muslim community? Mm -hmm. Like, it's bloody shocking. Yeah. But you know who suffered? It wasn't them. It was us. Yeah. Because we... Yeah. yeah. Go uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no finish good. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, basically, like, we were the ones that were torn between two worlds. You know, they fed us all of this propaganda that... Um, you know, Islam was the answer to every Western problem that we could see. Um, you know, hijab is the answer to, you know, sexual assault and rape and um, marriage and, and gender segregation is the answer to broken marriages and, um, you know, drug abuse and alcohol abuse is solved by Islam. And um, we're basically, we were, we were told that, that classic um, Salafist thing of you can't trust the non-believers um, they're the natural enemies of Muslims. They will always try to bring you down. And even if it's not intentional, they'll bring you to hell with them just because of their influence. And, um, yeah, we, my family was very anti-Semitic. Um, yeah, so we had all of that going on. But we, in reality, what we saw was completely contradictory to um, the indoctrination we were receiving. But, like, there's no way of of actually healthily addressing it. You're just in a situation where, you know, you love your classmates and your teachers and you're like, I don't want to see you go to hell. I think you're a great, decent person. But then you go home and you're told all of this crap and then you feel guilty. You feel like you're betraying each side at different mm -hmm. points. Yeah. Um, that, that's... And it, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I was yeah, going to say, that, that's kind of interesting because you, you didn't, even though you were from a Salafi family, you didn't go to like an Islamic school um, so, yeah. so when you went there, I mean, you were, you were wearing hijab when you went to school, and you were one of the only girls who wore it. Is that I how thought, it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and uh, and and then you say that three years ago you became an atheist. So I just wanted to kind of get into how that transition happened. How much you know when you talked about all of the other kids in your class, and you were thinking, I really like these people. Hmm. I don't want them to go to hell. How much did that play into it? Yeah, that was um, a big part. I think it throws, because the dynamic of, of heaven, hell, Muslim, non-Muslim is the entire basis of your life here on, on earth and what the hereafter is based on. If you don't believe that hell is a just outcome, then you're fucked. Like you can't believe in Islam and, and believe that or, or doubt that. Um, so basically there were lots of things like that throughout my childhood that I really, really struggled with, but I engaged in some hardcore suppression. 
um, basically just completely ignored all of those things and focused on the fiqh mainly, which is, you know, the the Islamic Jur- laws. Jurisprudence. So, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I basically started seeing religion through a prism of rules and technicalities and that took all the emotion out of it. And that really worked for me because I I didn't like God. I Like I said, I would really feared him. I thought he was a monster, but obviously you can't acknowledge any of that. Um, didn't like any of the companions. I thought, like, I've in so many previous episodes um, and you've gone, like, Omar is the worst fucking guy. Like, <laughs> I really love that because I hated him too, but he was my dad's hero. Like, <laughs> literally, they named my younger brother after him. Oh, and I yeah. was, every story, I was like, what the fuck? Like, this guy's an absolute <laughs> douche. But anyway, um, what was I saying? So, um, yeah, Your like, tray, lots yeah. of... So yeah, just suppressing um, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. Um, trying to look at it in a much more technical way because then it removed me from all the resentment and the doubts that I was having. And I was also really struggling because, and this is the worst part, is that I was experiencing the exact doubts that they were warning us against constantly. So right. they're telling us, you know, that Shaitan's sitting there waiting. Shaitan being Satan um, is sitting there waiting to, you know, basically, like, in your most vulnerable moment, when you're least expecting it, he's going to come in and put doubt in your heart, and then that's it. Done deal. Your one-way ticket to hell. So and well so they thought teach you, out. It really is. Because so they've covered all their you, bases. Yeah, like, if you're, you, you become your own worst enemy because you start to see yourself as weak and, and corrupted, and then you hate the fact that you're having these thoughts, and you hate yourself for... Um, you know, putting yourself in danger and you just, like, you can't see any of it as being legitimate. Like, I didn't feel valid in any of the feelings that I had because everyone else seemed so secure in their faith. Mm. Um, so I, like, yeah, Salafism did a real number on me and I was an emotional mess without realising it because I was ignoring all of it um, and just trying to make the best of my situation and then, like, another sort of spin to the story is that my brother really, really struggled with Salafism. Oh. He didn't want to be my parents' puppet. He just wanted some space. He just wanted to, you know, play sports with his friends, do his own thing, and he absolutely couldn't do that. Um, my parents wouldn't leave him alone. Um, they'd always say, like, they actually wouldn't leave us alone in our rooms because they'd say the shaitan preys on um, individuals that sit alone. Yeah. Jeez. Basically they think that um, you're easier to manipulate and control if you're alone. Whereas if you're surrounded by people, they can remind you about Islam and you're never meant to really engage in discussions that aren't about Islam. You're meant to be talking about Islam all the time. Holy shit. According to Islam. Yeah. It's really crazy. And so we weren't allowed to sit in our, like let, be left alone in our rooms for, um, you know, prolonged periods of times. So we weren't allowed to go out without non-Muslim friends who we weren't supposed to call friends or think were friends um, for a really long period of time. We were super isolated. And the worst part is I didn't realize this for a while, right? So I'm super misogynistic, but I didn't realize it was misogynistic for a while because my brother got so much shit as well. Like he was, he got a lot of criticism, a lot of heat. um, But the reason is still misogynistic. So it's because of the, the guardianship system. 
the men, men in Islam are the only ones that are ever going to be responsible for their own behavior. They're the only ones that have the capacity to influence anyone else around them because they manage the, the woman's affairs and their own. They're the ones with the sense of authority um, and they're the ones with independence. So as long as they're devout, the entire Muslim society theoretically should be de devout, right? Because women can't make it a deviant choice. Women can't choose to, to sin because they don't have choices to begin with. <laughs> like they can't choose to do the wrong thing because they don't have the power to do so. So my dad really honed in on my brother because they wanted to make sure that he was prepared to lead his own family one day. And mm. if he wasn't home, then he'd be my guardian, right? He'd be my mum's guardian. He'd lead us in prayer. He'd, um, yeah, protect us, take care of us, um, you know, discipline us if we did the wrong thing. Um, so, yeah, basically he really struggled and um, the house became extremely hostile. Their relationship basically completely broke down because he would pull further away. My dad would push him even harder. He wasn't allowed to leave the house because they wouldn't even let him move out. So this is what I mean. Like generally it's the women that aren't allowed to move out or live away from home. They wouldn't even let my brother because they, they saw him as, you know, an at-risk Muslim. Well, he was also surrounded by non-Muslims. That's also another yeah. thing, right? Like in, in yeah. uh, when you grow up in, like I grew up in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, and it, it wasn't that bad for the boys mm -hmm. because when you went outside, you know, you were surrounded by other Muslims and that same kind exactly. of culture. But yeah. I think that there was an element of him wanting to be corrupted. I I wanted to get, Armin, just before you, yeah. I know you want to ask a question, but I just remembered something when you were talking about Allah, speaking about Islam all the time, is that yeah. uh, when I was in med school during our psychiatry rotation, I remember we were interviewing a patient who had obsessive compulsive disorder, and this is in Pakistan, right? So they had the religious sort of things on the wall, and one of them was this uh, thing that says Allah's thought at all times. I don't know if you've seen that. And it says, when starting an action, say Bismillah. When making an intention, say Inshallah. When something is being praised, say SubhanAllah. There were all of these, this whole list of everything. And it said that, Allah thought at all times. And we were interviewing a guy who had obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was thinking, that's just so ironic. But yeah. it, it is true. Like People do tend to uh, think that way. But Armin, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, so how did you eventually become an atheist? Yes. Yeah. Was there so, one moment that I guess? Well, like, well, was there so, a, well that will uh, that will answer my. I think yeah. it would be in the answer. <laughs> it would be in the answer to the to the question. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah. Um. So I actually attribute a lot of it, and this is the the funny part, is I started following a lot of left wing pages because you you know I'm sure you can guess they were defending Islam basically twenty four seven. Um, were defending Muslims all the time. And I was like, this is cool. Like, these guys have our backs. Um, so I started getting a little bit more engaged with um, ideas outside of Islam because I felt that they were in alignment with Islam. Like, you know, their whole idea was, like, they were supporting us. Right. So I felt that it was safe. Because generally I didn't. I stayed away from all sources that I thought could corrupt me because, as I said, mm. I was so scared and didn't trust myself. So I, I really sort of barricaded myself with um, only safe ideas. So I started following these pages and like 
you know, as you can, as you know, a lot of it is about, you know, individuality, freedom of choice, freedom of expression. Um, you know, there's some chinks in that armour, as we know, um, with the regressive left, but the, the underpinning idea is all about freedom and liberty. And, um, yeah, so, like, I didn't agree with a lot of the things still. Like, like I didn't agree with homosexuality, unfortunately, at first. Um, abortion, like, sexual liberation um, or, like, owning sexuality and that sort of thing. I, I wasn't on board with any of that, but I did start to view the world a little bit, like, in it sort of chipped away at the rigidity of the Salafist um, sort of mentality that I'd been brought up with. And I think the, the real starting point was feminism because obviously feminism was something that applied to me on a personal level. Um, it had a personal impact on my life. And I think it was the area that I was most willing to challenge about Islam because I basically had a barely suppressed rage at all times about how women were regarded in a doctrine. Um, you know, the guardianship system, oh, that just, that really killed me. Like, as a Muslim, that was the hardest thing for me to deal with. Hmm. I, I, I honestly, I, that was the hard, some hardcore cognitive dissonance for me to stay Muslim while being that angry about the guardianship system. I don't know how I did it, really. So, um, so what, what is it that you didn't, like, can you explain that? Yeah. Well, the infantilizing of women, hmm. the fact that as soon as you're born, to the moment you die, you are accountable to another human being hmm. simply because of your gender. Um, there is nothing about, like, males are instantly awarded um, authority, independence, and um, respect, not based on their individual um, qualities or attributes, but simply based on the fact that they're men and are inherently more capable of running society, running their families, and running their own lives. And... Like, I just, obviously, as a woman, you can't really accept that. Like, you can't accept that you're less capable than your 13-year-old brother. So I also had a younger brother. Um, that, you know, he you know, he started leading me in prayer at the age of, t when I was 20 and he was 13. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what? like, that actually, I was so angry about that. Well, every time he'd lead me, I'd be like, go into it like really sarcastic. I'd be like, here we go. Cool. <laughs> Leave me in prayer then. <laughs> I was so irate about that. But in all aspects of life, it, um, you know, it was just, yeah, it was horrific. And I actually remember one time I had to travel somewhere. And obviously you can't travel without a mahram, right? So we were looking at the actual ahadith to figure out, okay, what's the evidence? Is there any loopholes? Because obviously there's a lot of different interpretations. So um, some... Uh, some scholars believe that you can go with a group of women. So, like, a group will um, sort of uh, replace a male guardian. So, th so, some people have flexible interpretations of it. So, we were looking at it. And I came across a hadith that um, I don't remember which companion it was, but he said something like uh, fathers need to be really careful of who they give their daughters in marriage to because once they're married, they are essentially slaves and um, you basically you've got to be careful of who you give that unadulterated power to hmm. because your daughter's life is completely dependent. Her quality of life is completely dependent on who this guy is and what he'll do with that power. He owns I, her. 
No. He owns her, exactly. No. And I was sitting there between my mum and dad and I just started crying. Mm. Like literally just spun, as soon as I read it, I was just bawling my eyes out. And my dad was like, what's going on? Like, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I just couldn't speak. I just was like, like, what do you say? Like, and then my mum was on the other side and she was just like, oh, just give her a minute. Just give her a minute. Mm. And I was like, just, Yeah. It's it's just that seeing on a page that you, in on entering into marriage, which is your only, like, option if you don't want to stay tethered to your dad forever, you're basically entering into a, a contract of slavery. Like, that is such a horrific reality to be aware of and it just hit me really, really hard. So lots of examples like that. Um, but basically I didn't like the fact that where was this written? This was like a hadith or what? Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a hadith. Um, I found it again recently, mm. but yeah, it, um, I'm actually, I'm not 100% sure what, okay. what source it is, but I, I did find it relating to Muhammad issues on Islam Q&A, right. which is um, a, oh, yeah, that, a website. Yeah, so I've seen that if you find it again, send it send it over to me. I I just saw I uh, accepted your you know we're friends on Facebook right now. So if you if you see it again, send it to me. Yeah, yeah, well. that would be very interesting to see. Okay, cool. Mm. Go on. Yeah, because that's probably yeah the most full on one. But then you've got other ones that say like the uh, Muhammad said, and this is definitely authentic. That if he were to order any human being to prostrate to another human, which is it's forbidden in Islam because you're only yeah. meant to prostrate. God, right. um, it would be a woman's husband. So a woman, if he right. were to ever tell another human being to prostrate to another, it would be a woman to her husband. I mean, that says it all. Right. Like, it's basically like your relationship with God 2.0, like like a lesser version of that. Right. It's just horrific. And anyway, so b- because I was Salafi, I came across all of this just naturally. Like it wasn't, I didn't even have to find it later on and then leave Islam, I knew all of this um, as I was growing up. None of it was a surprise to me. Yeah. It was just I didn't know what to do about it, basically. So when I started, sorry, yeah? No, sorry, sorry just I, the moment I realized that this is, you know, when I was reading the Quran, I don't remember exactly which part of the Quran it was, but at some point when I was reading it, I realized, I realized like, wait a minute, this is written in a way, like it's talking to me, but it's assuming that I'm a man, right? Yeah. Like I was like, wait, this book is not written like it's when it was written. It was it never assumed that a woman might be reading this. Like mm. the audience is men by default. Like I yeah, don't know yeah, exactly yeah. which verse it was, but it was speaking to men about it's speaking to the reader. It was talking about their wives. And I'm like, wait, mm. what if? But what if I am the wife that is reading this? Like yeah. this is definitely not a book for everyone. But go on, sorry. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I, but it, again, it was just one of those issues where, like, I knew I was seeing inequality and injustice, but none of my role models showed me that it was okay to feel that way. So mm. once again, I felt like I was in the wrong. I felt like I was seeing the world, um, yeah, like incorrectly that I was corrupted. So it took feminism and it took having a way, like a language to articulate these thoughts and these ideas for me to actually recognize the inherent truth of them. 
and to, to break through the spell of that fear. Mm. So um, basically, like, and as, as an example, I was always really passionate about um, like advocacy for, you know, sexual assault survivors and, and domestic violence victims. Mm. And then, so when you're reading about it and they're analyzing what the root cause of these issues are and, um, you know, how as a society we need to challenge some of the, um, you know, deeply held ideas that we have to challenge it long term rather than through Band-Aid fixes like more funding and, um, you know, campaigns. We actually need to challenge how we view women um, to, to change these things long term. Mm. I saw a lot of um, overlap between the, the factors that they're identifying as creating the conditions for sexual assault and, and domestic violence. Um, with with the doctrine, I saw that the, the doctrine contained a lot of the same ideas hmm. that yeah, that promoted that treatment. Um, so basically, again, it comes back to the guardianship system. Hmm. If you have, when they talk about combating um, domestic violence and sexual assault, they say we need to challenge um, people's ideas of what women are entitled to, and the biggest part of that is, um, you know, emphasizing that women need agency they need choice um that you know they need uh, opportunity and um independence within their lives and that they they need to be able to exist on their own terms they exist as human beings they don't exist as um you know a relationship to a man they don't exist as sisters and and wives and, and daughters and aunts they exist as women so they, they talk about challenging these ideas yeah. and islam does nothing but reinforce them like everything about Islam makes women, you know, the, the, the property and ownership of men and they have to exist in accordance to men. And, um, yeah, it, it basically, it can't exist within a society that wants to empower women because their entire position um, depends on the fact that they are owned by men. Yeah. Did, did you... Um you know, so if, if these were the reasons, did you try to look at other religions when you left Islam and you decided, uh, first of all, was there like one moment when you finally said, okay, that's it, I don't believe anymore? Or was it yeah. just a, do you remember a, a, a day, a straw that broke the camel's back? And, and after that, did you um, explore any other religions or think, okay, maybe there's something else out there for me? Yeah. So I think like the nail in the coffin was learning about was learning that hijab was you know um basically a myth like what what we thought the function of hijab to be to be a myth but when i started again like the language of feminism like understanding what victim blaming was and understanding that modesty puts the onus on women to prevent their own assault um act, it actually perpetuates rape culture and that sort of thing that was when i realized that so hijab is such a big part of a woman's role in Islam. You know, modesty is an integral aspect of her identity. Um, it's an integral aspect of her position within society, whether she's marriageable or not, whether everything about her morality is dictated by it. So if I starting to question whether hijab made sense, um, it, it was a huge blow basically to, my confidence in Islam. What do you and mean by just, what, what do you mean? It's a myth. Uh, it's just the, the the purpose that we're told 
that it serves. So the idea that it protects us against sexual assault, that it honours us, that it empowers us because it allows us to basically, I don't know, like the, the argument that I sort of held on to um, base, like just before I left was as it, that it was a tool against the patriarchy because we weren't giving into the, uh, our sexualization and our commodification as sexual merchandise. So we were basically depriving men of their entitlement to our bodies by covering it up. So that was the myth, so, was the reality. So what I started understanding was that hijab perpetuates the sexualization yeah. of women by it still defines them by it because if their inherent existence requires them to be covered up and to modify their behavior, mm. then you're still saying, sorry. Yeah. I'm saying that then it's the same thing. They're still sex objects. Right, go Absolutely. Ahead. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So when I, 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 I think it was actually a Facebook post that talked about modesty and said, Hey guys, you do realize that this is sexualizing women as well for that exact reason. Mm. You're still defining them by their sexual sexuality and their femininity, I was like, holy shit, okay, that makes so much sense. And then I real like I started thinking about hijab within the whole framework of Islam, the whole framework of how women exist. And I started thinking, okay, if Muhammad was wrong about this, if if hijab doesn't solve the problem, um, and it's very clearly a band-aid fix for someone with limited knowledge and limited understanding of human psychology and how society can actually progress better, there's no way it can be divine. So what it allowed me to do was actually think about it in terms of the, yeah, the broader understanding of Islam. And I just thought there's no way that a prophet from God could propose something that was so clearly ineffective, so clearly false and, um, basically made things worse. Like it's, it's, entrench that problem um even further than i than i would say it would have been back then like it's so hard for us like we're still even in the west even though we've rejected um religious influences more than the middle east we're still struggling with this idea that a woman's um presence like the way she presents to society is at any in any way to blame if she was to be assaulted like we still have police officers saying, what were you wearing that night? Were you drinking? Right. That sort of thing. So it's so insidious um, that there's no way someone that was coming from a divine being would propose that as a solution. Surely they would have known that they needed to actually make women equals if men were to respect them. You don't cover them up to make them worthy of respect. You actually change how they're viewed. And, and how what their position is in society. So that's, when you did, yeah. But, so you you did you um, go through this process. You're exposed to, I guess, some of the leftists, and you move on to looking mm -hmm. at feminism, and this has a huge impact on you. Um, and you said that three years ago, you when you became an atheist, you left home. So yeah. how did you tell your parents? Did you take off your hijab? What was that confrontation so, like? Yeah. So, so basically, after having that moment of realizing that the hijab made Islam seem like a bit of a joke, I sort of thought about all the different issues that 
had bothered me and assessed them against this new, like, basically only then I'd given myself permission to look at it objectively. Mm. So then I started thinking, okay, what do I really think about this thing that I've been wondering for years and years? (laughs) And I came to the conclusion that, yeah, it was insane. Like, none of (laughs) like. The entire purpose of our lives being a test when God already knows exactly what's going to happen, um, you know, free will, destiny, all of those things that bother really every human being. Um, we're just, some of us are just better at pretending than others. Um, basically just looked at that thinking, okay, I actually now potentially am going to do something about these doubts that I'm having. What do you really think? And sort of went through methodically and thought, okay, no, nah, this is... Nah. bullshit and then <laughs> but i was like in such a shit position at that point because i definitely couldn't tell my parents they were it just didn't even cross my mind to tell them really like it was so ridiculous to me that i would how, how long ago wait what was it ridiculous well the idea of telling my parents that i was having doubts about islam just based on the fact that you know, my brother not wanting to go to Friday prayers, um, my dad told him never to come into the house again if he stopped going to Friday prayers. Oh. So zero tolerance for deviation. I was like, I'm not going to tell them this thing that has Islamic um, precedent for murder. Oh. Like, why would I put myself in that position? Right. So I actually ended up talking to some high school friends and telling them, I don't think I want to be a Muslim anymore, but I don't know what to do about it because... I, I can't leave at home and uh, leave. I'm sorry, how long, uh, Ali asked, how long ago was this? So that was the three years. It all happened pretty quickly. Okay. So probably within like a few months okay, okay. of so, each other, I was so just started. Told, yeah, so you told your friends in school, then what happened? Yeah. So then they're supportive, but they have no idea what to tell me because they're all still living at home as well. Um, so we graduated high school by this point. So I was 21. Um, most of us were at uni working part-time um so yeah i just sort of told them and none of them really had solutions but then one friend basically said to me why don't you come stay with me for a little while and just sort out your head a little bit figure out if this is really what you want um just have some space because you, mm. you don't get that at home and i said like i'm not even allowed to come and sleep over at your house like i'm not allowed to leave this house mm. like for, you know, more than a few hours. There's, I wouldn't, I can't, I don't even have that option. So we basically came to the conclusion that it had to be permanent. If I did it, I had to do it for real. Wow. And um, yeah, yeah, because I was so suffocated and so restricted that my only choice was to permanently leave. Hmm. And so we talked about it and she said, you can come stay with me for a while until you get back on your feet. And I just went, fuck it, like, let's do this. Wow. I'm never going to get this opportunity again, um, and I can't live here any longer. So I left in, like, the early hours of the morning one day, mm-hmm. drove to my house. I like, cried the whole way. It was an hour and a half, and I was just, like, bawling my eyes out the entire time and got there and, I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a blur now, but basically just one foot in front of the other first, you know, got a job. Um, then I had to find a place to live and yeah, just all the practicalities that are pretty boring. But um, yeah, I, I had no idea what my parents would do, like what lengths they would go to. Um, 
because I'd, I'd had so many arguments with them about like extreme vigilante um, like consequences to people. I don't know, like, so we'd, we'd argued about terrorism a lot, argued about, um, you know, honor killings and like my dad would never outright condemn that stuff. So he, he wow. wouldn't say, yeah, it's great that, that like innocent people are getting killed, but he knew that there's a basis for them in the doctrine. So he couldn't say, I don't, I believe these people are evil or I believe this is wrong. Mm. Right. So I had no, I, I, I didn't know how he would react. I thought there was a possibility that he could come after me and hurt me because he, he, he he's all about the doctrine. He's a living, breathing doctrine. Did he ever hurt you? No, mm. no. So I, it was about probably a year and a half until I saw them again. Mm. And did, did they call was, though? I mean, you just yeah. took off. Did they? So, yeah. So my, what was it? I, yeah. I mainly spoke to my mum, and oh, it was just so. It's it's honestly looking back on it, it's really surreal. Like I feel like I'm watch what like replaying a movie that I watched. But um, I don't know. Like I tried to talk to her about it without outright saying that I'm an apostate. So, you know, I would just say, look, I have a real issue with the idea of God. I just, I don't really understand it. I don't like how, like, I, I don't agree with women's rights in Islam. I'm, I'm really having trouble with Islam. That's sort of how I said it. Mm-hmm. And I said, like, I need to have space to figure it out and, and figure out what I want to do because you guys don't give me that space. Like, I wouldn't even be able to take off the hijab at home. And like, what how did am I meant say? to what she said to that she said but she said something like if you if you live with other people they're going to bring alcohol into the house and then you're going to be around people that have alcohol because that's her arm right <laughs> that was her main concern <laughs> <What>? yeah <laughs> it was like you're going to be exposed to alcohol and i was like i'm literally telling you that i don't believe in god <laughs> that people are going to drink alcohol around me <laughs> It's unbelievable, but um, I just had no idea how to deal with that. <laughs> did, did you talk to your dad on the phone? No, no. I was fucking terrified of him. I, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I kind of know if she if she had said, "Listen, you have to believe in God. Come back, we'll convince you." That's something you were kind of set on. But she probably thought, okay, you may still, maybe if I tell you there's going to be alcohol around you, maybe you'll get scared into coming back, right? I, I think that may have been uh, the thought process, but but this is your first phone call after you left. That's a yeah. Ha- I was in the yeah. car driving away, and so I was talking to her on the Bluetooth, and she was like, "You know, what can we do? Like, you know, we'll let you take the hijab off if you want." And I was like, "It's too far gone. Like, it's too fucking far gone for you to let me." Um, you know, uh, take the hijab off and we'll let you work late because they basically wouldn't let me work after like seven o'clock. So I was working in retail oh. and they'd always make sure that I was home before dark. And so I was like, so they were like, oh, we'll give you a little bit more freedom. See, I think that the, what they don't understand is that, the, I, you know, they're like, okay, we let you do this, we let you do that. The, the whole idea of just you being in a position to have to let me do things is the problem. Yeah. 
right? Exactly. Uh, but but uh, do you remember the f- like the first time? Did, was it a unique experience or anything when you took off the job in public or anything like that? Do you remember that or was what that- was the like first taking it off? When did you do it? So I, I got to my friend's house that day, mm. and I was wearing the hijab, and then we went out to get like food or something that same day, and I still had it on. And she turned to me and said, "Well, like, are you are you still wearing that? Like, what?" And then I went, "Oh yeah, like, <laughs> let's let's do this." And I I took it off, and it was yeah an incredible feeling. Like I was just like walking around the shopping center, and I kept saying like looking at her, and like I had a smile like this big, <laughs> like oh my god, like this is amazing. Like it's so stereotypical, so cliche, but like the wind on your neck and it's not wind cause I'm inside, but even just having it exposed and like just thinking no one's looking at me. No one cares that I have my hair showing now. No one cares if I have my limbs showing. It's not like, it's such a, yeah, it was pretty crazy. You know, it's very, is, you know, it's very funny that you say it's cliche because I'm, most of our audience is not familiar with what, why you're saying it's a cliche. But the fact that this is a cliche is actually beautiful as, as, as to me as well because what you're referring to is like a lot of ex-Muslim women, <laughs> they say that, oh, they felt the wind in their hair, they felt it on their neck. So for you, it's cliche. For most people, it's not. Yeah. But yeah. but but to me that the fact that this is a cliche means is very common, and to me that shows how 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 unique of it like it's so revealing for people yeah. for outsiders to know like it, it, people that's such a basic thing which is feeling the wind in on your hair is such a profound experience for people, and that shows yeah. how and how tight of a box they were trapped in that that's. That's the experience that they remember when they took off their hijab. So, I mean, yeah. for me, that's a, the fact that it's a cliche is beautiful. The yeah. only non-cliche story of this <laughs> we heard, which cracked us up, was I think it was Nick, right? And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, she made the mistake of the f- first time she took off the hijab, she did it on a very cold day. And <laughs> oh, yeah. She's like, my ears froze. <laughs> wanted to put it back on. Like, okay, that's <laughs> we were expecting here. That doesn't fit our preconceived narrative on secular jihadists. Yeah, no, that's very yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> um, but I also remember that same trip turning to, like, that same trip to the shops, mm-hmm. turning to my friend and going, oh, I can buy perfume now. Because, you know, perfume's haram. For women, and it's basically equivalent to committing adultery because you're enticing men. And so, like, because we were just walking past shops and I was like, oh, my God, I'm not wearing hijab now. Now I can smell good. Like, it was just, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Not that I smelled bad, but you know what I mean? Um, But, (laughs) yeah, it was crazy. You said, um, yeah, go on, sorry. No, you go. No, no, I'll ask later after you say yes, but go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the next few weeks, I basically, I think like I mainly did it to make it real in my mind that I was actually free, but I, I actually did all the things that, the, the, the big things that are haram. So like I ate pork, which was a, a big one. I actually didn't really want to because again, it's so, um, uh, it, it really shows how strong indoctrination is that I actually felt a little bit repulsed by the idea of eating Mm. pig meat because you're told for so long 
that it's um, impure, right? Yeah. It's filthy. I, I, I still can't work. do it. Yeah. yeah. Really? At all? I, well, no. I've, uh, I've convinced myself that pepperoni and bacon are not pork. Uh, prosciutto, right. I can't. I don't think I can live without prosciutto. Uh, there's, uh, but then, like you know, stuff like pulled pork sandwiches. I still can't do that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. still yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like the actual yeah. flesh, like you and a like- lot of it is. It's an association because, like you know, over here, people who are, if you're told your whole life, like here, that you know you shouldn't eat dog meat, and then mm-hmm. you know you go to a place where people eat dog meat. You're not gonna, so a lot yeah. of it, is, it isn't even the religion. It's just the the yeah. association that you've developed. You know, with the, definitely, with yeah. yeah. But I was really surprised by it because. It's the one thing that I couldn't do, even though I was free to. Right. Um, so that was, yeah, quite surprising. Um, I ate it just, again, just for the symbolism, but I didn't really start eating it until mm. like six months. Mm. But um, yes, go ahead. No, no, no you the, go ahead. You go ahead. Go ahead. There's some um, of the other things that you did, yeah. Why? Um, yeah, so I, had, I drank alcohol. Um, and the, my first taste of red wine was that it was like bean juice. That's, and I still agree with that. <laughs> But, um, yeah, tried it um, a little bit more. Um, I went and got a tattoo for um, the same – oh, it might have been two weeks, within two weeks. Um, And, yeah, so just just the symbolic stuff. I went on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, okay. Um, Yeah, like just all of the the big things that I was like – not because, again, like I'm sure Muslims will look at this and say – Oh. oh, you just left to sin. You know the classic thing. Right, right. Sorry, I gotta interrupt. I just have to say one thing. When I, I just say, want I just want our patrons to real to note that it's Ali that I is interrupt, interrupting. interrupting. I our t- totally own it, right. but this is really important. Okay. I want this. I want everybody out there. Like, when, there's this thing when 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 people talk about these things and everybody else like, well, you just left Islam so you could drink and you could have sex and you could just own it. Just say, yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why not? I actually agree. Like it's ridiculous that we should have to pretend that we're still following their standards of morality because we've discarded that we've rejected it. I don't believe that doing that stuff's immoral. So why should I not do it? Um, yeah, I completely agree. But at that point, it wasn't really because I wanted to. It was because I wanted to um, shock myself out of feeling tethered mm. to that um, to that ideology. So, um, but yeah, actually, so the last few years have really been um, more of that, like enjoying my freedom, figuring out what I want out of life. Um, setting myself up with financial stability, all the, the, the normal person stuff. Um, but I, I'm really strugg- I am actually really struggling with the relationship with my family. I'm not, I still don't really know what I want out of it. Um, because there's, there's a lot of hurt and resentment there. Um, there's a feeling of betrayal that I felt like I had to leave home hmm. without telling anyone just to like fucking believe what I wanted to believe. Mm. Um, and now they, they, so they know that I'm atheist um, and they still want a relationship with me, oh. but I don't really trust it just because, yeah, I heard for my whole life that, you know, atheists are going to hell. Atheists are the lowest of all people. And, uh, you know, apostasy is the, the greatest crime that you can commit. One that will, um, you know, haunt you in this life and the next, like, it's just so much garbage that I heard my entire life that it, it's really hard to trust that they feel that way. 
Maybe they um, change their mind, though, no? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I'm just really scared still. <laughs> oh, oh. And I, <laughs> um, my instinct is to protect myself because yeah. they've betrayed me before. Okay. So that's why I acknowledge that it's it's a struggle because I, I know I'm distancing myself from something that may be good. Mm. But it's hard. It's really hard to undo that. Oh. Um, so, so, yeah, that's sort of my current project. Yeah. How, how many siblings do you have? How many? You said you had... Uh, two brothers one older one yeah. younger and yeah. um so the and and their what is their status with your parents right now i think my brother has my older brother the one where the relationship had gone to shit um yeah. he I, he's got a functional relationship with them now so he's he's muslim but he's muslim on his own terms and i think that separation earlier on and all that angst sort of meant that he doesn't have, like, he's not holding back now. He has already said, I don't want to be a Salafist. I don't want to live your way. And if you want a relationship with me, then you've got to accept that. Um, so he sort of set that standard earlier. So it's a, a bit easier maybe for him. But I don't really have a relationship with him mm. either because Why? Oh. The, the trauma of their, like, so my dad and my, I mean, sorry, my brother and my parents them going through all that that anger and hostility, um, that destroyed all of us because we were in the one house and my brother basically turned to, on me and, like, he bullied me and was really, like, he took his anger out on me mm. because obviously, you know, when you're oppressed by a tyrant, you don't direct your anger back at them because you can't, mm. so you direct it sideways. Mm. And that's what he did. Um, and, again... Hard, like maybe he's changed I mean, he's still got a lot of anger issues because of that um because of that experience but yeah we that it's, ruined our relationship too. it's very what it's about very, your young it's very it's very kind of you to like to be so understanding of somebody that like was so mean to you like you you're not like blaming him you're actually seeing him as a victim which is very kind of you to think about you know that way given that what yeah. you've experienced from him well, I mean, I haven't really done anything with that understanding. Like, I still don't really, I don't talk to him. But I really did see us as victim, all of us as victims, but not of my dad because my dad was just following the doctrine. I see us as victims of Islam. Mm. That's, that's Your dad is also a victim. Yeah, exactly, 100%. Mm. It, it forced him to, um, you know, reject his most human instincts to love to unconditionally love his children and to, to show compassion and, and understanding. He couldn't do that because the doctrine doesn't allow him to. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess, um, but that's what I'm Are working you, through. You said you met him one year after? Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, it was pretty okay. Um, I went back to our house. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know what made me feel sick safe enough to do that or what opened me up I, I can't really remember but it, it happened and yeah it, it was okay um but we were obviously all tiptoeing around the elephant in the room and it was pretty uncomfortable because I I felt like I couldn't really say that much like I, I was basically just sitting there trying to 
yeah, not offend them just with my very existence. So (laughs) (laughs) I was, that's, that should be like a quote or something. I was trying not to offend them just with my very existence. (laughs) That's a a summary of the ex-Muslim experience. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It is, isn't it? Okay, go Um, on. But yeah, no, just, just a whole lot of, yeah, messy emotions, um, and yeah, it, so it was pretty fine. And I went back another time, probably another six months later. Same thing. Um, so they were nice. To and you. then I just, yeah, yeah. They, they, we just didn't talk about it. But they were so unapologetically Muslim when I was there. Like, I mean, I don't expect them not to be. Right. But you know, we were sitting around, and they're still, you know, criticizing girls that are showing too much skin. And um, but you are showing skin. Yeah, well, so I was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt because I wanted to be. Isn't that too much skin too in there? Oh, okay. But, yeah, yeah, pro- probably, but I think they're more talking about like short shorts and right, right. maybe certain types of skin or mm. yeah, I don't know. And but that's exactly it. They weren't really considering the fact that they are reinforcing ideas that I've rejected, and that that's fine. We can have different ideas, but. It's still traumatic to me that that the association. So that was really hard for me because I felt like I I couldn't ask them for any differently. Um, I don't expect them to act like they're not Muslim when I'm there. That's not what I want. I want us to both be ourselves. Mm. But I think what the real issue was is that I was still struggling to process my apostasy properly. Mm. So everything was like a trigger for me. Um, Everything felt like, like a passive-aggressive attack, and I really don't think that's what they meant, but because I was still harboring feelings of guilt and shame mm. about my decision, um, because I've, I've felt that way for so long, um, that, yeah, like I just I wasn't able to move forward with that, that olive branch as much as I, I wish I could. And just by the way, this podcast has helped me process my apostasy so much faster than the two and a half years that I was non-Muslim. Like, really, just you guys bringing people on, talking about this, normalizing the experience, it helped me with that, those feelings that I, I didn't even realize were weighing me down, but I felt guilty for my decision. And having this constant source of validation and, and you know, legitimizing the, that decision it's really, really helped me. So uh, I, I hope you know how much of an impact you're making. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, we're the apostasy catalysts. That was <laughs> We're here to make it easier for everybody. Yeah, no, but yeah, I am, that was so nice to hear, by the way. Thank you so much for sharing. That's telling yeah. us that. Yeah. No, yeah, it's incredible. It was like, so listening to you guys, I, I basically binge watched like almost two years worth of podcasts because I only, <laughs> I said, discovered about six months ago and like, I couldn't get enough. I was like, oh my God, like this is what I've been craving for two and a half years. I just couldn't move past this roadblock, which was, you know, the, the deepest part of my indoctrination that I still hadn't been able to challenge. Um, and yeah, like is incredible. It was like aloe vera on sunburn. I was like, oh, it was almost instant. And um, it gave me the courage to actually, I've started going to counseling to work through some of the the trauma of, you know, the family and um, just 
the leftover feelings of doubt and and you know shame and all that sort of stuff um that I feel like I can't actually access on my own I just need someone to like talk me through it but the fact that you guys gave have given me a platform or like given others a platform to reach me and validate that experience gave me the courage to go hang on I'm allowed to feel good about myself. I'm allowed to help myself and I'm allowed to pull myself out of this because my life decision oh. is worthwhile and I'm worthwhile. Oh. And it's really, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm glad I, I got the opportunity to say that because I've yeah. been wanting to for a while. Well, I, I want the opportunity right now to return that compliment because the reason that I invited you on, I, I know that Armin, uh, you, you met in Australia, right? Armin, when you, when you were there. Mm-hmm. So, I, I did was uh, because I was reading what you're writing, and today I'm actually doubly impressed because you're you're what you're 24. Yeah. This is going to sound really ageist, but um, you're so articulate and you're such a good yeah. writer, and I feel like we need that. And you're also very well thought out. You know, when when you when you write things, it isn't just uh, you know because you you see people and it's completely justified. And I love the people who are uh, who are angry and uh, you know mm-hmm. that, but. But there is a there is something about you that's very reflective. It's very empathetic, and we're seeing that more now. Talking to you, that you know, you 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 have a lot of empathy um, with the, the way that you talk about your brother and so on. So I think that um, I think that voice is very important because I think people who hear people like you speak the way you're speaking now, or who follow you on Twitter and see the way that you write things with your uh, the threads that you put up. Um, I think that that is the kind of message that will resonate with people that makes them feel like they're not alone. Um, and I, I, so I, I wanted to, I guess, with that also ask you another question is that you went, uh, you know, you said that you went to the, you started following the sort of leftist people. I guess that's one advantage of the regressive left is that when people do uh, tend to, when they do pull in Muslims, Muslims are exposed to things like feminism and gay rights and all that. So that is, yeah. I guess, one thing One thing that's that's positive about it. But uh, with atheism, you, you didn't discover the ex-Muslim movement until about six months ago. But were, were there other, other sort of atheist figures uh, generally uh, that you had seen before that uh, that you were exposed to? Not really. And I, I think that's why I struggled for so long is that like I really was just trying to, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a cause for struggle, but I was struggling because I was trying to work through that process on my own and just I basically all I did was I went, all right, I don't like God. I think he's a dick. Um, I'm a dick and I can't worship these fuckers. Therefore... No I'm offense to dicks, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> we're all big fans of. Uh, yeah, good. Um, so I, it was literally just a process of me saying these people are not worthy of my attention mm. or my respect. So I'm leaving this. And um, to answer your question a while back, I didn't consider any other religions because I was so done with religion. Like you, I, mm, no, yeah. No. no religion, no ideology for me. No. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, uh, sorry, um, I, I don't. I, I just have to get. I know uh, this is a little bit, um, you know, different from what we've been discussing. But I just really want to get this devil advocate question, you know, in here because I just want to make sure that because I, when you're saying these stuff, I keep because I, I talk to a lot of 
moderate Muslims, people that call themselves moderate Muslims or liberal Muslims. And if they were listening to this, I kind of hear them right now exactly what they would be saying. Uh, and I just want to see how you would react to that. But they would say, well, you know, what you're talking about is not really the Islam that many Muslims experience, right? You had a very unique uh, Salafi experience of Islam. You know, there are a lot of Muslims that support women's rights. There are a lot of Muslims mm-hmm. that, you know, this is a... This is, Salafi is a minority. Yeah, yeah, no, hold on. They say, say this is one reading of the as, uh, Islam, one reading of the Quran. It's not necessarily... They're correct, you know. You know there are other ways that you could inter, you know, read the, interpret the Quran or the Islamic um, teaching. How would you respond to to that? Um, I don't know. Like it's it's hard because obviously everyone thinks that their version is authentic. Mm-hmm. But to me, like Salafism is the mentality that you're going to take everything about Islam, good and bad. You're taking it at its barest, rawest form mm-hmm. and um, you're, you're using the example of, um, you know, Muhammad and his companions in the first generations of Muslims, you know, they were called the Salafs, which mm-hmm. is what it derives from, um, and, and practicing it without any um, adaptation, without any modernization, without any additional, um, yeah, like rejigging based on your own personal context and, and, and circumstances. So, I don't really understand how that argument, like intellectually, I don't understand that argument because we were applying the religion as it is and um, being as honest about it as as possible. There's no sugarcoating. There's no cherry picking. You're basically going, I believe that this is the truth and that's all I need to know going forward. I'm not going to change anything because... This is the like this is the strongest evidence we have. It's written there in the doctrine. Right. Um, it's black and white. <laughs> Go for your life. Like that's it. And so I, I know that there's Muslims that um, you know are LGBTIQ that they're feminists, like whatever. And and Muslims can be anything, but Islam cannot be those things. Oh my God. Okay. So, You're my um, perfect. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I when I titled like my book "The Atheist Muslim," it was basically a stab at that. That, well, if you can be a feminist Muslim or an LGBT yeah. Muslim or whatever, then why can't you be an atheist Muslim, right? It's a, totally. That was the whole idea. So, uh, so yeah. I, I, I kind of want to. You're my to... new hero now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I wanted to move on to um, something that's happening in your region of the world, right? So there is. Uh, uh, in New Zealand recently, we had the shooting, uh, the, the the terrorist attack at the mosque. There was a shooter who went into a mosque and killed over 50 people. What's the count now? I think 52 or something yeah. like that. Uh, 52 yeah. people, just uh, just a horrific, horrific terrorist attack. And, um, you know, to, well, on, at the time that we're recording it, right, there has been this uh, movement, um, I guess a well-intentioned movement, but as you've pointed out, still mistaken uh, that uh, people to show solidarity with the Muslims who are killed uh, they're now doing several things uh, a lot of the women are wearing hijab a lot of non-Muslim are wearing hijab to show solidarity with them uh, they, they they broadcast the azan I think the call to prayer yeah. and uh, they had someone recite the Quran in in the government in the parliament Gross. and even though I'm 
I'm a massive fan of uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister, and I love the way that she's been handling this, and I wish more people were like her. I do think, I do agree with you that she has been, uh, you know, she, she is mistaken about this, as well-intentioned as she might be. So can you kind of just outline your thoughts on maybe your reaction to the to what happened and um, what your main criticisms are in terms of how we show solidarity with the victims? Yeah, um, I was really actually quite gutted to see that stuff um, that that stuff occurring because it's like because we, we do we talk about it a lot that we we know that. Um, there's a, a blind spot within the left that they basically give Islam special treatment because they view Muslims as a vulnerable minority. Um, but in doing so, they, 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 they try to suppress hate of Muslims. Um, and in doing so, they suppress dialogue of injustices that occur by Muslims or like are, are propagated by Muslims. And, and Islam um, obviously is the, the heart of, of the issue. Um, and so, yeah, seeing like on the, the day that the attack was reported, this immediate, like just massive posts of people saying, see, this is what happens when you have people criticizing Islam, you know, they give, um, a, a motivation to people to go out and carry these acts of, um, you know, like, like tragic, um, circumstances. And, um, it's all because people you've, you've created a, um, an environment of hate and mistrust of Muslims. And, um, yeah, it was just really, really devastating to hear that come back, even though not, it's not at all surprising mm. because we know that for some reason it's completely unacceptable. Like we've been talking about um, there's a, a you know a big priest like Cardinal Pell that um, was recently actually convicted of um, pedophilia. And, yeah, and sex- child molestation, child sex- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and everyone was talking about it. Everybody was celebrating the fact that this guy had actually been, um, you know, penalized for it. A lot of people were saying it's not nearly long enough. Like that was mainstream national discussion. Mm. And, um, there, there was no conflict there. Everyone was united on that. And then, um, you know, you have people wanting to criticize the, the doctrine of Islam for the same things. Like to me, it's the same as criticizing the church. They're still, um, they're both sources of, um, you know, religious ideas. And suddenly, you know, we're being all being dragged through the mud for giving um, rise to this sort of, you know, hate and and bigotry. And I just, I it was, yeah, because I actually used to be, again, you guys are responsible for um, exposing the regressive left to me. I had no, I, I was completely blind to that hypocrisy. Um, like when I left Islam, I became a hardcore leftist and um, was all like super in, like buying into identity politics and um, the victimhood narrative. I, yeah, it was really powerful to me and I was really, really, really um, invested in it. And so only recently I've sort of, I've had to rethink everything and go oh my god now i think because when you leave islam you have a massive void and so i just filled it with like left leftist ideas and rhetoric and so then once again in 
you know, finally had gotten settled and then thought, oh, no, now I need to reevaluate all of my ideas again. <laughs> um, <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, I was seeing a lot of friends post the same thing and, rec- uh, you know, re- really recently I would have been sharing the same posts, um, you know, just saying, you know, we need to take better care of what we talk about and, um, you know, not make inflammatory Remarks And what a lot of them were saying was demonizing, not Muslims, but Islam. They're saying we can't demonize Islam. And I was like, why not? Why can't we? Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, anyway, so that was really, really upsetting. So can, and then, I, can I just say one yeah. thing? I, I want to see what you think about this. Uh, one thing I'm telling people is like, if you saying like critics of Islam are responsible for violence against Muslim, how is that mm. different from saying... Muslims who advocate for Islam that are are responsible for Islamic terrorism. Like we would, that would be yeah, also okay. that's ridi- like these people that are making these claims. They rightfully so will recognize how ridiculous it is if we go to all Muslims or yeah. an, or anybody promoting Islam and telling them you are responsible for Islamic terrorist attack. We wouldn't make that accusation. So how is this different? Yeah, and yeah, uh, the totally. thing is, a lot of the people who are saying this are actually in the atheist community, and I've said to several of them, and I think Armin mentioned this as well in uh, one of the previous episodes we had on this, is that you know, uh, the, all of the other atheists are saying, well, you criticize Islam. They're American atheists, right? Which is a group that I love. American atheists mm, put out, they, they shared that article that said that critics of Islam like Richard Dawkins, or you know, they, they're, they're the ones who are responsible for the New Zealand shooting, they hold the blame. And I, I was just wondering, I'm like, you guys have been criticizing Christianity forever. So are mm-hmm. all of the deaths that are happening, or the Christians who are being killed, like in Pakistan, or who are being persecuted, wh- what if I blamed you for all of that? That's because of your rhetoric about Christianity. It's just completely ridiculous. Another thing that Armin said recently when in his CBC interview, when he was deplatformed, um, that I really liked, and I, I've also said before to people, is that there, there are a lot of Muslims who don't like atheism. Like it's, it's a very easy concept to understand. They don't like atheism. They despise yeah. the fact that. But they're, uh, I mean, I'm talking about my Muslim friends, uh, you know, but they're okay with me as an atheist. They're like, okay, you're an atheist, whatever. I don't like atheism, but if you want to be an atheist, yeah. be an atheist. And that is exactly how simple it is to mm. say that, hey, I despise Islam. I don't like Islam. You know, I think it's crap. But yeah, if you want to be Muslim, be Muslims. And, you know, that's your right. Or beyond um, just, or really beyond just letting, like, okay, so beyond just letting people, even befriending them, befriending them, appreciating them, loving them, being in relationships with them. I mean, many there, there are many people I know who who are in relationships with, like ex-Muslims, are in relationships with believing Muslims, and you know, it's uh, it it works. That, that doesn't mean that you have to like Islam. It doesn't mean that the other person has to like atheism. So, um, this is just such a simple point that I think is lost on. Uh, almost everybody. Yeah, I think like I don't I don't know if the issue is that I don't like I I don't know because obviously you know on the internet you get a concentrated view of something and it's not necessarily reflective of mm. you know the entire population or, or proportional. Um, but I I don't know if there's that many or like a strong presence of Muslims that are making the same point. Like I, I don't know if on their side of things, they're saying, yeah, we're okay with um, people criticizing Islam as long as 
we can maintain a respectful dialogue. I, I think that's quite um, quite rare. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's rare, but, but not- it's growing. We're, it's, okay. it, yeah, it is growing. It's actually become a lot more common, especially here in the West. And um, I think that I would, I guess I would credit to some extent, uh, as as much as I don't, I hate to do this, is the regressive left in the, in the same way that you described earlier with your experience, is that, so generally what happened in the U.S., for instance, before George Bush set two, before 2000, um, Muslims, the majority of Muslims would vote Republican, right? Because they had the same kind of views uh, on abortion and they were conservative yeah, yeah. and they were socially conservative. Yeah. And then after 9-11, what happened was they started voting Democrats. And, and then after 9-11, an interesting thing, when they started moving towards the Democrat, the Liberal Party, they also started these things about gender equality, tolerance of homosexuality, that all of these things started improving. And now, you know, polls now show that in the U.S., over 50% of Muslims actually are okay with gay rights, which was never the case before. It's a massive jump. So I think that uh, that's also had something, um, some sort of role to play in it. But it, it is a, it, it is a, it's so, so you do hear a lot of Muslims here saying that, okay, yeah, you can criticize Islam, we're willing to do it, we'll engage you in debate, but um, uh, we have to respect Muslims' rights. They, they don't totally practice it properly, they still get really upset and take everything personally, yeah, yeah. but at least that concept is kind of beginning to take root in people's minds. Yeah, I mean, but it's not getting, go sorry, go ahead. No, no, mm-hmm. you go ahead. You you don't um, don't let don't let us if if we interrupt you and you want to say something like just be like no let me finish like just go for it yeah yeah we're, we're talkers just jump in and yeah yeah just, just be like Armin shut the fuck up I'm, I was saying something All right. no I mean I want to hear what you guys are saying too this okay. is so yeah. great for me okay. I'm so happy to be here so I'm like yes yeah. please tell me what you think okay. <laughs> yeah. um I, I don't know like it's but you know when you're describing the influence of the regressive left in improving. Um, these other sort of ideas of acceptance and equality, but isn't the regressive left reinforcing right. sort of the victimhood mentality this, that no. Muslims are already prone to? As a, as a, like yeah. I, as a Muslim, I was so much on the victimhood bandwagon, mm. like which I think is why I went straight to the left because I was like I really identify with this as being a defining identity um, trait. Mm. I think we're using the left and regressive left interchangeably and I think I suggest we don't do that because I don't I don't think most of the left is the regressive left. I think the regressive left what? is just a loud minority in the le- in the left. I think there's No, a- I don't think so. I think uh, I think most leftists would uh, think that this idea of wearing a job for solidarity is yeah. a good idea. I mean, that's a okay. that's a regressive idea. But I mean, here's the thing. I, I think it's still. I don't think they're bad intention. And, and when you talk about this, when this comes up, um, they do. They're they're increasingly there are many more people on the left who are leaving the whole. I can't tell you how many messages I get that. Oh, I used to be a regressive. I used to be pretty much regressive all the time until I heard you guys starting to speak. And they mm-hmm. always say this. They're like, when we heard ex Muslims speak. Right, because mm-hmm. they were liberal. They thought the same things we did about freedom and about liberty, equality, diversity, women's rights, gay rights, patriarchy. All of this, they they would come up and they would speak about these things. But they said that there's one 
blind spot that the left has, and that is this, and that opened my eyes. You know why is it? Why is it that they say that? Oh, when I heard ex-Muslims speak, because they still have this idea that, like, oh, these are brown people, so I have to listen to them. No, 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 Armin. No, that's simplistic. They're doing it because ex-Muslims have been through an experience and they describe their life. Like Amema saying, you're talking about it. When you tell your story about being a Salafist and everything you went through with your dad and mom, like the the. Uh, there's that entire the substance of that story it's not just because she's brown i mean there's also brown people i know out there i know but i'm just saying that if crazy. the same if the same things that we said if it came from like a white dude they probably would be like they wouldn't well, take it as seriously no, there it's isn't just, the lived experience that's why that matters yeah, okay <laughs> even even an ex-muslim like we had what ex-muslim white people right i'm pretty sure yeah. i'm almost sure almost sure that if it was a white convert to islam that left islam now that person is a, has experience. He has experience that he could speak to. But because he's white, I'm pretty sure he would be taken less seriously, even if he has the experience to, to back it up. I, well, I think, I think that you might be right in some cases. Right. And in, but I think that anybody who heard Nick, who was, again, white, and she was on our podcast, she left and oh, she was raised as a but that's ultra-conservative our, no, no, that, That's our audience. Our audience are more mature. No, I think I, I think anybody who would hear that story yeah. and what she went through, and uh, hear the details of it, I think that they would forget uh, mm. uh, that she was white, um, and yeah. and start listening to what the story. This is this is. We I think go that, to patron questions soon. By the way, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I got to make one more point. I know, Mema, yeah. I, I want to let you, but one more point. Like you know, for for example, when people say that this is, it's all about skin color and this and that, and that people just want uh, a, a woman. Like, for example, they want to, when they elect a president, the liberals, all they care about is skin color and she should be a minority. Well, I'll tell you something. If you have a white guy like Beto O'Rourke and he's running for president and then you have Candace Owens, who is a black woman, these liberals who keep on talking about their identity politics will still vote in majority for the white guy. Because it's not just about the skin. It's also about the ideas that they would not want to. So you're supporting what I said. So you just supported what I said, that most of the left is not regressive. No, I'm saying... <laughs> you just think <laughs> they're not regressive when it comes to most things. No, that's they're not I, regressive that's what when I was it comes saying. to healthcare and I, I this whole. I, but they're regressive only when it comes it's, to I think this Islam uh, and treating it differently because of tribalism. Like, wouldn't they yes. just vote for the white guy because they're so fixated on loyalty towards their ideas, not because they're not regressive? Yes, sure, that's fine. That's a more legitimate criticism that it's because they have maybe idealistic uh, tribalism, but I don't think it's necessarily because of the uh, the skin color, right? Otherwise, this you know. Okay. All right, I'm not going to I'm not going to challenge you because then it's going to turn into a show between me and you. Uh, but, <laughs> but sorry, but we usually have one of these uh, in every with every guest. Where the guest is just sitting down. On the yeah, uh-huh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they usually have at least once in every yeah, well, guest pod. But we're gonna keep them shorter. Uh, but we should. Uh, so, Ali, did you make the point that you wanted to make so before we go uh, to the Patreon questions, or you want to? Yeah, make- we'll go to the Patreon questions. I want to ask you one last thing. The other side of the regressive left is that right now there's a lot of conflict. I know Harris Sultan, right? You know, he started. What is now the biggest petition in Australian history against Fraser Anning? So Fraser Anning is a senator uh, from Australia who came out and he said after this Christchurch shooting that, 
you know, this is all because of Muslim immigration, and this is why we need to stop Muslim immigration. And and uh, Harris and, and the, almost every ex-Muslim I know was outraged by those comments. So, you know, you're balancing this thing where you have, you know, some people are putting on like these repressive symbols like the hijab to show solidarity and, and singing the azan and broadcasting it. And on the other hand, you have a guy, um, you have this other group of people that are, uh, sort of just really the anti the overt anti-muslim hate and mm. we are obviously all caught right in the middle so uh, how how do you do that when there's so much anti-muslim sentiment how do you criticize islam and um have it be heard with the people who really need to hear it yeah so yeah, i mean that's us. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's it. Yeah, that, that's no, all. No, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, look, I've gotten all my tips from you guys. Um, when you, when I started listening to you, how you were saying we need to be careful to always separate um, Muslims, criticism of Muslims from criticism of the ideology. All the pressure on us. You just turned all. Yeah, the exactly. On us. Well, you're like our mentors, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I. So I actually, when I like first left Islam, I didn't want to talk about it either because I had actually experienced anti-Muslim bigotry myself. Um, Because obviously the area that we lived in, as I said, we were um, a minority and um, my mum wore the niqab and I wore um, the hijab and we constantly had people shouting out from cars at us. My mum got abused every single time she went to the shopping centre to the point where um, I would actually, when I knew that she was going and I couldn't go with her, I'd actually be afraid and wait for her to come home. Because I was just convinced that one day someone was going to assault her. Like I just thought one day words are not going to be enough. Um, And actually some guy, we don't know if he was like pretending to, to scare her or if he actually just missed, but sort of started steering his car at her when she was walking my brother to school one day, as in like, yeah, pretending to mow her down. So I, I had experienced that um, that side of things and I thought because I still hadn't learnt what the difference was between, um, you know, Muslim as, as a human um, and an identity versus Islam as the ideas. And because like when, you're, when you are a Muslim, there isn't any difference. Like you're meant to defend the idea of Islam um, till your your dying breath, like you're you're taught to be very wrapped up in that, um, right. and and you're not really you're not taught to sit back and be okay with healthy criticism and and healthy dialogue. That's not like it's it's no surprise to me that we're in the situation that we're in because you know I was that person. Um, but yeah, so then when I came out of it, I was like, well, I know that this is a really big problem, and I don't want to add to it. So I, I totally, like, from my own experience, understand that fear. Um, and I think all it took for me was to understand that or to acknowledge the fact that people were genu- people are suffering and we are still campaigning for the same things that the left is, which is, you know, equality and justice and acceptance and, and freedom. And why should we not do it just because you know, other people can't differentiate between the two. Like we owe it to Muslims who don't have a voice Mm -hmm. to speak up on their behalf. And if we don't do it because of the far right or because of, you know, white supremacists, then we've let them win and we've let let people suffer. How can we possibly live with ourselves? 
uh, this is what I think the point that people are missing is that we're not we're not talking about Islam to satisfy our egos and we're not talking about it um, to, you know, for cathartic release. We're doing it because we know people are suffering and they don't have anyone talking about it in their own communities. They don't have platforms to criticise. So we have to do it. Mm. And I, I, I don't know how we stop the wrong people supporting us and propagating our messages um, other than to say over and over and consistently that, you know, we support a person's right to be a Muslim, we support their their basic human rights to live with respect and dignity, um, but there are issues with the doctrine that they support however much um, and we, we want to challenge those issues. So... I don't know, beyond that. Well, but that if was there perfect. were more of us here, you'd get a standing ovation. That was perfect. That was perfect. Yeah. That was amazing. Well, I learned from the best. So. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, thank you for that. Uh, so, remember, we're going to go on to some of the patron questions that we have. We have some really um, good questions, by the way. Yeah, we do. Ooh. It's a, it's a lot of... So, first of all, I want to blonde infidels here, blonde infidels in New Zealand. And uh, <gasps> she is... Saying like with, and she has some em, uh, an emoji with lots of hearts on it, and she's saying, "I'm a huge fan of Amema. She's so smart, and I couldn't agree uh, more." I mean, it's uh, you're like I, I'm just I, I could talk to you for another two hours. Yeah. Um, oh. So uh, Lois uh, is saying Lois from Calgary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She, who's also? Yeah. She. She. We raised, love her. Yeah. We love yeah. her. So she's uh, she's saying a couple of things. First, she said you might enjoy Dan Barker's book, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, uh, which is actually a really fun yeah. book. Yeah. And awesome. uh, she's also – so she also comes from a fundamentalist uh, background. So she's saying, raised fundamentalists, I could not go to shows or drink. When mm-hmm. I first went to a show or liquor store, I felt all eyes looking at me, thinking that I shouldn't be there. Did you have similar feelings? So when when she was in a show, she felt like all eyes were so yeah that that paranoia when of she first everyone. Went, like... Yeah, um, I don't know. No, I I was very good with that stuff at sort of letting that that shame um, that shame go. I, I yeah, I, I was more focused on my absolute um, yeah excitement at being there and being able to reclaim my freedoms and, and rights to, to be myself, but I can completely understand. And I've heard a lot of other ex-Muslims say that they felt really uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think it's just, yeah, different reactions to the, to yeah, that we had y- Yasmin Muhammad who uh, yeah, was a co-host on this. Um, when she talked about it, she said that uh, she felt almost like she was getting naked. Like, you know, she felt yeah. even though she had completely gotten rid of the ideology, it was yeah. so deeply embedded in her psyche, yeah. uh, the mm-hmm. indoctrination that, that she had trouble taking it off. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, we, we've heard that story a lot, too. So, so. I, think, I think you missed a, uh, a, a couple. No, no, no. no. I'm, I wanted to go by the person because, like, they, oh. I was just bunching all the comments together. Okay. But, no, I'm going to get to all of them. So uh, we've got Mahmoud. Uh, Mahmoud is saying Australian Muslims seem to be more close-minded and strict like the ones in Britain, unlike North American Muslims who are forced to mix into the mainstream yeah. uh, due to a lack of generous social support. We have sure. we have the best Muslims in North America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is it uh, – but I guess uh, uh, he's bringing up the point of 
because it's um, general uh, a generous social support. Do you think that that may be one of the reasons? Uh, we've talked about this before on the podcast. So for just for for context, uh, once we talked about it on the podcast about why, how one of the reasons when I used to see people going from Pakistan to the UK um, or to France when they went there. Uh, they, the financial assistance that they got, the social assistance that they got from the government, was more than what they were getting being store owners and running their businesses in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they, it's easier for them to sort of ghettoize and isolate themselves than the rest of society. Whereas when you come to the U.S., uh, you can't depend on social assistance forever, so you're forced to integrate. You have to go out and make something of yourself. So I, I think that that's the point he's getting at. Mm, interesting do you think theory. that has anything to do with it? Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of those communities existing. Um, you know, you hear about sort of like polyg- polygamy being rife in these communities because they're able to get support to, to maintain those sort of families because um, obviously the, the marriages aren't legal. They're just, you know, nikah, like the, the Islamic contract. So they're just able to get like sort of continued support um, funneling in. I didn't... Mm, I don't know. It, it's I didn't really see any of that firsthand, so I'm I'm hesitant to comment right. because it just seems like anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Um, we're not the right that, people to ask because we're not experts in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it could it yeah. could be the case, but I think it's more likely the reason that like what what I suspect to be the reason is that like Australia is. I think we're they're bec- we're becoming more. Um, open-minded and liberal but it's it's got a very conservative base Mm. um and so when my grandparents moved to australia they had a lot of problems integrating because people were racist like they they didn't want foreigners coming in and um you know my grandpa came as an opportunity to practice medicine Mm. um they'd actually advertised to have immigrants come in and work but Mm. the you know australians didn't want them here and um so I think the reason they end up forming these communities and maintaining mm. sort of a strict adherence to the doctrine is because they're otherized. And actually, Islam gives them a global community. It gives them a community that's superior to the one that you get through um, nation- nationalism. So what you're suggesting is that the bigots might actually be pushing people to more uh, the true version of Islam. Definitely. And like, because I'm convinced that's why my grandparents went towards Salafism. Mm. I think they were craving a sense of community and they went to the mosque. And obviously, God, Dawah people. So, Dawah is the invitation of people to Islam, to the way of God. Um, oh, we know. Dawah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, um, no, but she's saying it for our audience. So, thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, thanks. Uh, I, I was just being sarcastic. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah we yeah. know. We've, we've oh, heard yeah. a lot of <laughs> um, Dawah people. Man. They are like, they're masters of I don't, maybe manipulation is a strong word, but they know exactly how to hit people's vulnerabilities and what they need out of the doctrine. They, it's, yeah, that's it's called manipulation. Sense. That it's not a strong. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds harsh, doesn't it? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that they know that people have um, a void that they're trying to fill, and they go, "Hey, you know, don't worry about the fact that you're excluded from." you know, an Australian community, we've got an even better one and it's not restricted to Australia. Mm. It's all over the world. And, um, you know, we've got the fiercest sense of loyalty that you'll ever, you can ever imagine. Um, you know, we put each other first always. 
um, you know, there's a conflict in Palestine, we're talking about it. If there's a conflict in Syria, we're talking about it. Um, and, you, you know, you've got the propaganda, like the, the Ummah, so the global Muslim community, is like one body. And if, if an illness or an injury affects one part of that body, the entire body feels it. And so that's what you're told as an individual Muslim, that you're part of a community so strong that you're affected by um, any sort of harm that comes to one part of that of that body. So, yeah. So in a sense, um, this confirms what we always say. It seems like the, the biggest need the Salafis to make their points. Uh, so the Salafis are actually helping the bigots because that's what the, the examples that they point to. Um, and and the and so sorry the the biggest need the Salafis and the Salafis need the biggest. Okay, so the biggest yeah. point to the Salafis are like, look at this is what Muslims do, and the Salafis point to the biggest like, look at because of these biggest you need us to protect you. So they kind of yeah, yeah. help each other grow their own communities. Kind of, you know, yeah. In a sense, yeah. And and yeah. for the Salafis, they get the the narrative that Muslims, you know, have always been victims since the beginning of time. Every prophet was victimized. Every prophet was isolated and alienated. And you know, the the prophecy of the end of times is that Muslims will be few and will be victimized then as well. Right. So Dijal, they need to get say that yeah that yeah the Dajjal and um yeah basically that will be um, few in number and. Um, there'll be lots of hypocrites and there's a ho- whole thing. But right. oh, basically, yeah. Muslims are told that they're perpetual victims. Mm. And, yeah, the bigots reinforce that, that narrative. And so it's like, oh, look, Islam's right. Look, they, they know our affliction before even we know it ourselves. Islam understands us. Islam, you know, it caters for all of our woes and, and fixes our problems. Hmm. It's definitely like a self-fulfilling cycle it's, or a, it's a vicious cycle. Each one needs the other and just goes back and forth. Right, but then if right. they, but they have they have an narrative for everything because if they if they weren't being oppressed, if they were be, if they were winning and uh, conquering, then <laughs> they they will also say like, look, we are in power, so we must be right. God is God is on our side. Like, <laughs> oh my God, yeah. They say it all the time about ex-Muslims. They're like, look at the glory and the majesty of Islam. Look, even ex-Muslims are thinking about Islam. Look how powerful it is. Yeah. So like, which is oh my it? God, you, so true. They have an answer for everything. <laughs> it's it's shocking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there there is. Uh, I'll just quote Dr. Gregory House here from the TV show. He said, "If you could reason <laughs> with religious people, there would be no religious people." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Said, There's nothing in the Quran that's as brilliant as that. Um, so uh, <laughs> Mahmud is. Uh, asking and he's asking. So, blonde infidel. Also, she said something that we covered. Could we? Could you please touch on the head scars for humanity thing that happened here in, in New Zealand yesterday? We, did we talked about that. And then Mahmoud is asking. On top of that, uh, can you please ask? They want. He wants your thoughts on whether the normalization of hijab by Westerners actually is making it harder to show the real harm in it. A point. Mm-hmm. I'd like a point against the moderation of Islam. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I saw a, a tweet today actually that was saying you're continue or you're perpetuating this relation that you know, so Muslim women are struggling against this association that you know to be a true Muslim they have to wear hijab, right? Their own community is saying that a Muslim woman's incomplete without hijab. Mm. And then when Westerners continue to um, show their support through the hijab, they're once again saying that the only that the very definition of a Muslim woman is a woman that wears hijab. So they're, they're perpetuating 
this overwhelming pressure for a Muslim woman to behave and and conform to um, certain standards. And so they're basically saying the only victims, so let's say in, in terms of the, um, the Solidarity Day um, in New Zealand, they're saying that the only victim, Muslim uh, female victims that we recognise are the ones that wear hijab because that's Ooh. the only way they're showing solidarity. So what about uh, the others? Are they not that's Muslim? A very, yeah, you're... <laughs> well, I right. didn't make that point, so I'm, <laughs> give it credit where credit's due, but yeah. it's it's very true. Um, yeah. it's It perpetuates this toxic identity um, that, yeah, Muslim women are fighting to their very core to, to separate within themselves that I can, like, modesty isn't, first of all, who gets to define modesty? Like, hijab isn't necessarily the only definition of modesty, but that y- you can be a good and moral and um, even religious, if you want to be um, a religious person without conforming to these standards. So, so by the yeah, way, Ali, in I, terms of, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, sorry, Armin, one, yeah. one thing, in terms of modesty, just because while we're on this topic, in terms of modesty and its association with this job, um, how did your uh, family, as a Salafist family, view non-hijabi Muslims? Like in the sense that if hijab was supposed to be modesty and it's supposed to protect you against sexual assault, non-Muslim women who, or sorry, Muslim women who did not wear the hijab, which is a majority of Muslim women, do not wear the hijab, how did they um, process that? Well, what did they think about them? The, so the protection against sexual assault and rape was sort of, the, the logic that I as an individual took because it was the only thing that it's sort of semi made sense because, you know, we see like in, in reality really high levels of rape and sexual assault. So someone telling me that it modesty protects me, I put, you know, you can put two and two together, obviously without understanding the deeper issues at play and think, okay, that sort of makes sense. Like, you know, if we're in a society where this social issue is a massive problem and nobody's covering up, maybe there's correlation. So it's, it's incorrectly correlating to, um, to things, but that's sort of what I went with. For my family, first and foremost, it was a, a religious duty as the slave of Allah for a woman to cover. It, they didn't feel the need to put any logic on it. They didn't feel the need to rationalize it. The only thing that mattered was that, you know, Allah expects a woman to perform this duty and in doing so, um, yeah, she was basically fulfilling a basic requirement and in not doing so, she was sinning and it's like a, a statement of arrogance that you don't need to, yeah, perform this, this duty, um, you're caving to Western standards, you're, um, yeah, basically flouting uh, a, um, it's like sinful sort of behaviour. So my family viewed them very poorly. Yeah, um, so... At, at one point when my family still, like, in fairyland, they thought they could get my brother married and that would fix the problems with him, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, they didn't talk to him about it and he would never have agreed and, you know, he obviously doesn't need... He's free to make his own decisions because he's a man. Um, but they actually looked at this... They found this girl. She was, a, like, a family friend and she wasn't wearing hijab. And they thought that they might be good for each other because he wouldn't want someone that was super religious... So that was my mum's idea. Wow. And then my dad was like, no, she's not religious. Like, she's, she's, if she's disobeying Allah on this one requirement, what else is she going to do? And um, how is she going to bring up uh, our grandchildren? 
then she's not going to teach them to be obedient because she's not obedient, hmm. right? Yeah. So, but it, 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 it's summary badly is how they view mm-hmm. them. By the way, you mentioned right. you mentioned conformity, which is uh, one thing Ali mentioned, which is very uh, funny. I mentioned it all the time ever since I heard from I think from Ali was that you know Muhammad himself did it, was a rebel against the society at his time, according to mm-hmm. the according to Sunnah. So mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to follow the way of Muhammad, you know he was rebelling against the religious authority of his time. He was so, a blasphemer. He was a he blasphemer. Was a I mean, you could you ex-Muslims should like just for fun. They should like they could go to yeah. their parents and be like, "Hey, look, we are we're we are just following Sunnah. Sunnah. <laughs> we're following <laughs> Sunnah. We're following the Muhammad's way of rebelling against the religious authority. That's what we're doing." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's you know when people say, "Why did you give up the religion of your parents?" I'm like, "Oh, it's following the example of the prophet." <laughs> That's exactly what he fucking did. I love it. Oh, that's Sunnah. so good. That's yeah. every ex-Muslim is following the example of their prophet by giving up the religion of their parents. Yeah. I'm going to tweet that tonight. Yeah. And that's yeah. So, so Mehmet, we've got about four minutes left. Just wanted to say, um, uh, oh. just thank you. I can't express the, the, my gratitude in words right now. I'm so glad you came here. This is such an amazing conversation, and I think it's going to give a lot of people a lot to think about. Um, there are, I just I want to, first of all, have you tell us where people can find you. Yeah. Um, and you're right. On Twitter, Facebook, um, the, 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 if, just throw out. If you can say the links for the people who are listening to this who may not read the description, uh, that would be mm-hmm. good too. By the way, the description, um, so- just to be clear, because a lot of people in the live chat, the description when this becomes public, not the description of the live chat, not, not uh, the live feed. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Um, so it's mainly just Twitter. Um, so it, the, my handle's at, at uh, omema m 94 okay. uh, There might be an underscore somewhere in there. Oh. It might be <laughs> underscore M94. I think so. Uh, let um, me actually just double check really, really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so I can let people know. You should know this. Yeah, it's actually, it's at O-M-A-Y-M-A-M underscore 94. Right. So there you go. Okay, yeah, yeah, perfect. And where are all these great writings <laughs> Ali keeps talking about? Like, where can we find that? It's, that, it's our Twitter yeah. threads, man. Oh, yeah. it's on a thread. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm just... technologically, um, yeah, not not very advanced. So, yeah. starting with Twitter, and then we'll see what I do next. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you're also on, uh, you also write for Faithless Hijabi. Um, can you tell us really quickly about how that came to be? Yeah, so I, one of my threads, um, uh, Zara commented on it and said, oh, are you an ex-Muslim woman? Please submit your story to Faithless Hijabi. <laughs> um, so I ended up messaging her and we were going back and forth and I said, oh, I think what you're doing is amazing. If you need any help, let me know. Um, and, yeah, so it was just a bit of back and forth. And then she came back to me one day and said, oh, yeah, I really do need help. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, so I, I basically... Um, at this point, just publishing the stories. So, you know, we get them from the the submissions, we edit them, um, sort of make them visually appealing, um, and, yeah, then just post them weekly. You don't have a Twitter account, though, Faithless Hijabi. No. um, No, we don't. We don't yet. So we're we're looking at extending. You guys have to set it up because uh, the stuff that you have on Instagram and everything is amazing. So for people who are hearing this for the first time, Faithless Hijabi was started by Zara Kay, who was was on our podcast. She's the Australian 
uh, ex-Muslim who's uh, also absolutely brilliant and very, very spunky she's, and she's feisty and cool. She's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, anyway. So she started it. It's it's really wicked. That like the 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 name is kick ass. Yeah, you know, faithless yeah. hijabi. So, um, by the way, Ali, like, I, yeah. I had I had a huge appreciation. I was just in Palestine, and I and I was meeting. I met a bunch of atheists in Palestine, uh, yeah. and some some of the atheists were wearing hijab because because of their family. And oh, I was yeah. like, and I was like, oh, you're you're a faithless hijabi, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like this is what Zara was talking about. You it's guys, such a great term, yeah, it's, faithless hijabi. I mean, it started making yeah. sense to me when I started actually meeting atheists that wear the hijab. Well, go on. Yeah, I I saw the same thing in uh, like in the Netherlands and in in uh, Belgium. And I went there, the people, because I, I did some talks there. And then I saw the audience. I was like, oh, there's a quite a few. There's like one Nakabi. There's a bunch of hijabis. And like, what's going on? So I'm probably going to get some combative questions afterwards. So I did my talk. And then they come up. No. They're like, I'm actually, I'm, an, uh, I'm a closeted ex-Muslim. Yeah. Right? And they, oh, so, they, they, they all turn out to be. It's so, so many ex-Muslims wear hijab. Yeah, it's crazy. So now every time I meet an atheist that has to wear the hijab, I now know where to. I tell them about like, did you know that an organization named after you? Like, there's a there's a faith, and they're like, wow. Like, f- when I tell them that there, there, there are a lot of other atheists that have to wear the hijab, they're actually very surprised, and they're like, okay, I need yeah. to go look this up, and they started like taking note about the faithless hijab. But should I, uh, like, put them in touch with, like, who? With you or with Zara? Like, if they want their stories to be sent to you? Well, they can they can you message the Facebook page. So it's Facebook called page. Faithless Hijabi. Okay. And um, we get the stories through the inbox. But there's also um, an email account that I only just found out about. But I, I think the best way is to the, inbox the Zara account. on Twitter okay. or inbox the, the, the Facebook, uh, Facebook page. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But more things right. are coming, so Sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's expanding. There's a I lot think, I of. I didn't know how big of. I thought like, oh, this is a very unique thing, but now I realize there's a lot of atheists that are wearing the hijab because they have to. Like, this is a huge thing, which is amazing. That you know, we need oh. to we need to get their stories out there. And it's Definitely. actually really great that you have like this actually caters to women. Like that's one yeah. thing that's like super cool about it because yeah, I mean there are a lot of other amazing uh, you know ex-Muslim or you know the Muslimish type organizations uh, that that do that, but this specifically uh, caters to women and women who've left Islam, which I think is a very very it's a very different journey for women as yeah. it is for men. So yeah, it's a I big passion that of Zara's. Yeah, yeah, to create a safe space for women and. Um, Work on their empowerment. Safe space, safe space as it was originally. <laughs> safe space as it was originally intended, not as what it it's had. It's okay. Beca- we gotta we gotta reclaim the term. It's like safe yeah. space. Um, no, no, not 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 as well. Let me finish. Uh, not as it has become because a lot of people forget that it, the idea of safe space was something not similar to what the regressive left wants now. Like it was actually something that was a good thing. It was a good idea that has turned into something. Uh, you know, with a huge PR problem now. But as, anyway. as someone who's called regressive here a lot, I want to point people out that there is a recent network of restaurants and things that people who wear the MAGA hats, the red hats, they're also looking for safe spaces where they can eat because they tend to get harassed <laughs> everywhere they go. So they're finding like safe. They actually call them safe spaces too. So oh it's happening God. all over the place. But we're not making like th- that's a very great point. I mean, Ali, you're not making fun of them. They actually like we. Uh, they need it. Like it's not. They like, do they, need it. Yeah. They do. Like they. Yeah, a lot of Trump I mean, supporters. People snowflakes for it. 
Yeah. It is funny, it's, but it it's, is humorous it is, because it is, of the irony. I mean, it is it funny, is. but That's but why. the fact is that we 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 have to acknowledge that a lot of Trump supporters, even though we don't support Trump and we're not Trump supporters, yeah. and we think we have no idea how could anybody support Trump, but we do also acknowledge that a lot of Trump supporters get a lot of hate and a lot of abuse, yeah. undeserved abuse. And they deserve to have a place that they could go where they meet each other and not get, and be able to find other uh, Trump supporters without getting all the harassment. Like so, they yeah, deserve especially to- with the children. I gotta say, like when it comes to kids, I'm very sensitive. I don't care if you have a MAGA hat or whatever. It's just when, if you're there with your family and you've got your kids there, just don't don't fuck with people who are sitting there with kids. I mean, even if you don't have kids, like Trump supporters. If you don't have kids, it's fine. Harass them all you want. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. I'm, okay. Anyway. I think I think Trump supporters should become a protected class now. If maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so blonde infidel Mahmoud. Mahmoud, I know that you're. Uh, you seem new here. You're a new patron. Thank you very very much. Uh, for supporting us and thank you for your questions. I mean, they're brilliant questions. Yeah. Uh, Lois, as always, um, said everybody who uh, sent in uh, their questions and their support, thank you very much. Omema, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. It's amazing. And uh, we had a lot of fun. I can't wait till this goes out. Me too. Um, thank you. So, and, and just welcome to the scene. Just keep speaking out. I'm just yeah. <laughs> you're brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Oh, thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you All so right. much. This was so much fun. So, Yeah, we'll see you guys next time then. All right. Bye, everyone. The Secular Jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.